Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Have you had a period in your athletic or professional career where you kind of felt like you were on fire? Maybe you made a whole streak of consecutive shots in a game or executed one good idea after another at work. In his book, The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks, my guest today explores why success sometimes seems to arrive in clusters like this. His name is Ben Cohen. He's a sports writer for the Wall Street Journal. Ben and I begin our conversation with an explanation of what it means to have a hot hand and how this phenomenon has often been studied in basketball, but can also be seen in a wide range of areas, including the film career of Rob Reiner. We then discuss what may cause winning streaks, whether or not they can be induced, and what Stephen Curry does when he starts feeling hot in a game. We also talk about what the video game NBA Jam can teach us about the psychology of the hot hand. Boom shakalaka. We then dig into what the academic research has found on whether the hot hand truly exists or is really just a cognitive illusion. And we end our conversation with what you can start doing today to take advantage of having a hot hand. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash hot hand. All right, Ben Cohen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you were a sports writer for the Wall Street Journal. You got a new book out, The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. So what got you going on this deep dive on whether the hot hand exists in sports? Well, it's a really compelling subject, first of all. I wrote a few stories about the hot hand for the Wall Street Journal a few years ago. And honestly, usually what happens after I write stories and think about stories and like spend time talking to people about those stories is that by the time they publish, I'm just so sick of them. I don't want to think about those stories anymore. The opposite kind of happened with these stories that I wrote about the hot hand. I wasn't really like exhausted by them. I was kind of invigorated by them. And I just felt like I was still getting started, like I was only scratching the surface of what I could possibly learn about the hot hand. So that doesn't happen often. And the fact that it did happen made me think that there might be something bigger here. So let's talk about like what we mean by hot hands. I think everyone knows sort of the layman's definition of a hot hand. So let's talk about that. And then let's also talk about what, how researchers, scientists, academics define hot hand. Sure. So I don't think there's like a singular definition of the hot hand. I think it means different things in different industries. But I like to think of it like very simply as when success leads to more success. That's kind of the simplest way to put it. So in basketball, for example, and it's always been studied in basketball, which is one of the things that really appealed to me about this idea. In basketball, it's when you make one shot and then another shot and then another shot, and you feel more likely to make your next shot. You can't miss. You're in the zone. You are on fire. But what's really irresistible about this phenomenon is that it's not simply about basketball. This is really about human behavior. And I think that we are all familiar with this feeling of the hot hand, those times when we're on a roll and nothing can stop us. And what I have found is that if we take advantage of those times, they can kind of elevate our careers and maybe even change our entire lives. And where else do we see this, the hot hand besides basketball? Everywhere. I, you know, honestly, I know that sounds, that, that sounds a little bit ambitious, but what I have found is that like, once you start looking for the hot hand, you kind of bump into it anywhere you look. And so that's movie making. That's like, you know, in your own careers, it's writing, it's investing. It's like it, it, this, this power of streaks, there's like a magic to it. There's something of a mystery to it too, but like, this is not limited to basketball or just sports has wide-ranging impacts, and it applies very, very broadly. Yeah, an example of streaks showing up in movies can be seen in the films of Rob Reiner. I mean, this guy made hit after hit after hit, even with movies that had previously been difficult to get made and that people didn't think would ever be a hit. 
That's right. The first three movies that Rob Reiner made were Spinal Tap, Stand By Me, and The Sure Thing. And there was this incredible newspaper story after these three movies came out that sort of distilled the essence of Rob Reiner's directing career to its essence, which basically this newspaper reporter said, Rob Reiner's movies are hits, not because everybody expected them to be hits, but because nobody expected them to be hits. They were these delightful contradictions. And so what happens after he makes three movies that nobody wanted him to make, but turned out to be either critically successful or commercially successful, what happens is that people think that he has the hot hand and the perception of him has changed in Hollywood. And so he has this incredible exchange with a studio executive around this time where the studio executive says, we want to be in business with you. Like we will, we will make any movie you want to make, just name that movie. And what Rob Reiner says is, trust me, you don't want to make the movie I want to make. And she says, no, really, just like name the movie, tell us. And he says, no, really, you don't want to make this movie. And finally, she puts an end to this Abbott and Costello routine they have going. And she says, just name the movie. What movie do you want to make? And Rob Reiner says, the movie I want to make is called The Princess Bride. And the studio executive says, anything but The Princess Bride. And for, for many years, The Princess Bride had been like a, a riddle, like haunted by a curse. It was the great white whale of Hollywood. Even though it was written by William Goldman, who said it was like the best thing he ever wrote. And this is the guy who wrote Butch Cassidy and who wrote All the President's Men. Even though like it was this incredibly rich material, Robert Redford had tried to make it and star in it and he couldn't. Truffaut, Jewison, all of these brilliant directors before Rob Reiner had tried to make The Princess Bride and they all failed. What allowed Rob Reiner to make The Princess Bride, even when nobody else wanted him to make it, and even when he came very close to not making it, it was that hard, was that he did have a hot hand, right? There were these resources available to him. He had some capital. He had this runway and he was able to use it on this movie that has become like this beloved cult classic. I mean, one of the most beloved films we have. Now, the cool thing about this movie is that it actually elevated him to an even higher level because after The Princess Bride comes out, he then rips off When Harry Met Sally, Misery, and A Few Good Men, which is like the second hot hand period. But it's very clear that like only because he did have the hot hand was he able to leverage that to his advantage. And like the world in some cases have never been the same because like, you know, I think the Princess Bride, there are these classic lines that are just seared into our memory over time. Well, and you've had, there's researchers who study this phenomenon of success that comes up in clusters. They have any, they, they have any idea why it happens? Is it like talent? Is it circumstances? Is it just luck? What's going on there? I think it's actually a little bit of all three. I like to think of the hot hand as when like, it's this collision of talent and circumstance and a little bit of luck. I think you put it very well. What, they, what these researchers who have studied creativity and workplace success have found is that our best work happens to come in bunches. Like our creative hits, they're clustered. And this is in movie making, but it's also in science and it's art. And it's, it's anywhere, these researchers believe, where they would have bothered to look for it. So the people who wrote this paper a couple of years ago, they wanted to put these very objective numbers to the very subjective issue of taste. Like what makes a movie good and how do we know if that movie is good? And so for movies, they looked at IMDb ratings. For art, they looked at auction prices. And for science, they looked at Google Scholar citations. These are not perfect metrics, but they're about the best that we have. And what they found is that like, if they knew what your best work is, 
they would probably be able to find your second and third best work because it's right around that best work. We have these hot hand periods in our careers. And the really interesting thing about that is that they tend to define our careers. They're like what people remember about what we do at work. So like when we think about Rob Reiner, we think about that hot hand period. We think about The Princess Bride going into misery and A Few Good Men and When Harry Met Sally and like the movies that made that possible. So the the reason they are so interested in this is because like they want to know like how do we work and how do we maximize our productivity? And clearly the hot hand plays some role in that. And have they found any ways to induce the hot hand or is it just a matter of just, it just happens? I think it just happens, which is, which is sort of the elusive and the frustrating and like this like devilishly entertaining thing about it. I actually asked, I figured I was like, you know, I, who, who can I ask about this? Who has felt hot before that I could ask like if they, if they have any way to predict what's coming? And so I thought that the greatest shooter in the history of basketball week would be a good person. So I asked Steph Curry about this and I said like, do you know when you are about to get hot? Because we all, like watching Steph Curry get hot is like, I, I think it's the most thrilling thing in sports. And what he said, which I think is really interesting, is that he doesn't know when he's going to get hot. He doesn't know where he's going to get hot or why or how he's going to get hot. But once he does get hot, he has to embrace it. And I think that's a cool way of thinking about it. Like once you do get hot, once you realize you are in that moment, the only thing you could do is embrace it. And as you say, too, Curry is a good example of how a hot hand occurs from a meeting of, of talent and circumstance and the special energy that emerges out of that. To me, like sometimes circumstance bends your way. And so like if you're Steph Curry and you come along when the NBA has never put such a premium on three-pointers and people who can shoot from outside, like that's circumstance that he wouldn't have had in the 1970s and 1980s, right? Like he came along at the perfect time and he had this one game that elevated his career and nothing was ever the same, like not his life, not the fate of the Golden State Warriors, not the future of the entire NBA. But there are also people who live at the wrong time and aren't able to capitalize on that streak. Now, something else changes clearly, which is that like we have this burst of confidence. Something changes within us and we're able to feel that momentum and, and our own behavior changes. Sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. But like, you know, you think about it in terms of basketball, we have these heat check moments where we feel like we have the freedom to do things that we wouldn't ordinarily do. And so in basketball, that means like pulling up from 30 feet and taking a shot with a hand in our face. For Rob Reiner, it meant making the princess bride, but like clearly something changes. And and so sometimes it's like talent taking advantage. Sometimes it's circumstance. Sometimes it's just like pure dumb luck. Like sometimes like you just need things to to happen that you wouldn't expect to happen and probably have never happened at any other time. But if they do happen, as to as Steph Curry says, like you have to embrace it. So some other things you looked at and about the psychology of what makes streaks so appealing is you went to I think a classic video game of a lot of people's childhoods. I know it was mine, NBA Jam. Yeah. Um, so I, when I, when I remember I saw the title of this book, The Hot Hand. He's like, he better talk about NBA Jam. You know, talk about it right away. He's warming up. He's on fire. So, like, what what can that game teach us about the psychology of streaks? Well, clearly that they're powerful. So the thing about that game is that it was made by this brilliant video game designer named Mark Turmel. And when Mark Turmel was growing up, he loved three things. He loved basketball and he loved video games. And what he really loved was fire. He was actually a bit of a pyromaniac. And he would combine those three childhood loves into the biggest hit of his career. And so when I grew up playing NBA Jam, 
when Steph Curry grew up playing NBA Jam, when probably you grew up playing NBA Jam, the game was everywhere. It was ubiquitous, right? What I did not realize was that like, that wasn't just me or you or Steph Curry. It was everybody. Like Everybody played NBA Jam. It was one of the most lucrative, successful games ever made. It made a billion dollars in quarters. Not a million, like a billion with a B in less than one year. It was this monster hit. And so when I started thinking about why, when I asked Mark Trammell why, like what made NBA Jam so so powerful? Like why did we always want to play this game? Clearly, like there are any number of theories. It's it's it was a fun game to play. Basketball was fun, even though it had nothing to do with basketball. It was a basketball game that like was modeled on a sci-fi game based on like a post-apocalyptic society. It was not like any other basketball game or sports game. But what I think is that like. It was it was magical to hear those three words, he's heating up, and then those next three words, he's on fire. There was something alluring about that superpower of the hot hand, and you always wanted to get to that mode where you do three things, and then a fourth thing happens. What I think is that Mark Trammell kind of single-handedly brainwashed a generation of impressionable young minds into believing in this concept of the hot hand. Because until I read all of this literature about the hot hand, it never even occurred to me that there might not be a thing called the hot hand. Because honestly, like I played NBA Jam. Of course, there's a thing called the hot hand. And yeah, that's the thing. I mean, what I think the hot hand in NBA Jam teaches you or being on fire is that it's really addictive. Like you'll just keep going so you can get back in it. Because like, once you're there, like every shot you make for like the next minute or two, it's going to go in. I think addictive is like a perfect way to do it. And you and not only addictive means like you want to keep doing it, right? Like you want to keep feeding quarters into that machine to keep playing NBA Jam to try to get to that mode. And like this was purposeful. Mark Trammell in every game he has made since then over the last like 25, 30 years, he has tried to bake some sort of hot hand mode into that game because he knows it's addicting and he knows that it makes people want to keep playing his games. So I think people have maybe experienced the hot hand themselves. Like I'm, I'm not a basketball player, but I've had that moment where I've been played some like pickup ball where every ball I put up seems to go in. Steph Curry has has experienced it. We've probably seen Steph Curry. I mean, we, everyone's seen Steph Curry do that. But then you talk about in the 80s, there's a group of academics saying, yeah, hot hand, it's actually illusions. Let's talk about that research. Yeah, this was it was, it was this classic paper that was written by Tom Gilovich, Bob Valone and the great Amos Tversky, who is just one of the brightest minds of his generation. And what they did was they looked for the hot hand in basketball because they had a sense that it was simply going to be a case of seeing patterns in randomness where they don't exist. And their theory was that what we call the hot hand is actually just a way of rationalizing what we think of as patterns. And so what they were able to do was secure the best data that was available at the time. And it came from the official scorekeeper of the Philadelphia 76ers, a guy named Harvey Pollack, who was way ahead of his time. He was nicknamed Superstat because he was like one of the only people in sports paying attention to statistics back then. And they looked at the chronology of shots, the order in which they were taken. And what they were trying to find was like, are you more likely to make your next shot after making two or three shots in a row? Now, they asked basketball players this. They asked professional players. They asked players at their schools. Almost all of them, to a man, said, of course, there's such a thing as the hot hand, and it's important to feed the hot hand. When someone has made a couple shots in a row, you want to get them the ball. Now, this is an example of like 
changing behavior. It's exactly what psychologists and economists study. However, once they looked at the data, this play-by-play and the order of shots in which they were taken, they found there's, there was really no evidence to support that shift in behavior. You were actually not any more likely to make your next shot when you were on fire. It was sort of a cognitive illusion. And that made for this like really delicious, contrarian, counterintuitive paper that they published and has since become like part of the canon of behavioral economics. It's one of the most famous papers in the history of academic psychology. And, you know, the, the, the fascinating thing about it is that like, even after it was published, people just wouldn't believe it. They, they took it to a reporter, told the former Boston Celtics coach Red Auerbach about this paper once. And he just sort of sneered in disgust and said like, so these guys make a paper, like I couldn't care less. Like anyone who has been in basketball and seen the hot hand and felt the hot hand just like would could not wrap their minds around the fact that it actually might not be real. And that paper held up for like 35 years and that's changed a bit in recent years. Now, even though there is there's been some evidence to the contrary that has come along recently, like I, I have to say I still find that paper so admirable because just the contrarian nature of it, this the way that they were able to look at something and see something that nobody else had seen is just so cool to me. And I think that they're probably right about what they found. Like we still do see patterns in randomness for one thing, but also the hot hand is not like this exaggerated fireball of our imagination from playing NBA jam. Like that is not real life. And so they were clearly onto something, whether or not there's no such thing as the hot hand, I think is like an open question now. And I think that we have reason to think that like there is such a thing as the hot hand when circumstance allows for it. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Well, so I think, yeah, I think, I think the paper does, it raises the point that human beings have the tendency to find patterns where pat- patterns don't exist. So example of this during World War II, when Britain was getting bombed, like they thought there was a pattern to the German bombing when in fact it was just random. And then you also highlight how music is shuffled. That like our tendency to find patterns can actually mess up the way or it it skews the way we think of like when we hit apple shuffle or spotify shuffle like we we think there's a pattern going on when there's actually not a pattern that's right we make playlists and we ask apple and spotify to shuffle them and yet sometimes we think that those shuffle buttons are broken because we think that this random music is not actually random this was a problem actually that both spotify and apple had to solve not too long ago because we would hear the same song twice in a row on a playlist, or we would hear the same artist twice in a row on a playlist when there are 10, 15, 20 artists. And we were convinced that something was wrong. Not only something was wrong with like the, the algorithm, but like that there was almost something corrupt happening. Like, like the record labels were paying Spotify to play certain artists more than others. That's not what was happening. It's just that we see patterns and we remember when we hear two songs by like Beyonce in a row, even if there are, you know, lots of other artists on that playlist. And so what Spotify and Apple had to do was actually tweak their code and change their algorithms. And it was a bit absurd, but what they did was they took playlists. And if there are 10 artists on that playlist, they would evenly disperse those artists over the course of the playlist to guarantee that you wouldn't hear the same song or the same artist twice in a row. And like no less than Steve Jobs got on stage at an Apple keynote about 15 years ago and he explained like their thinking behind all of this. And it was so absurd that he like he he couldn't even help but laugh at the situation because when you think about it, what they actually did was they made it less random 
to feel more random. Like that's nuts. And it's because we have a really hard time wrapping our minds around randomness. And so Spotify and Apple didn't stick to their guns and say like, well, this is purely random and you have to get used to it. They actually just gave their users what we want. And what we want is to not think about pure randomness. So believing in the hot hand, let's just say, let's say the, we're not even going to say the hot hand exists. It may or may not, but believing the hot hand in say basketball, the stakes aren't that high. It's a game. But what would happen if someone believed the hot hand and say like, if they were a farmer, what would be the consequences of that? Yeah, it's the same thing as like investing in the market. And if 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 you are a farmer, I actually took a trip to a farm on the border of Minnesota and North Dakota not too long ago to meet with uh, a fifth generation sugar beet farmer named Nick Hagen. And I wanted to know, like, do you believe in the hot hand? And more more important, do you behave as if you believe in the hot hand? And what Nick said is like, yeah, I believe in the hot hand. Like I've played sports, I watch basketball, I've seen the hot hand for myself, but I can't believe in the hot hand when I am farming. Because if you are a farmer and you look at what happened last year or the year before and you invest your resources accordingly, you're essentially betting the farm. And if you're wrong, you go broke because there's a difference in farming than there is in basketball. And in farming, like the way that Nick says is that farming is defense, which is a really interesting way to think about it. Like when Steph Curry is shooting, he's playing offense. He's in control he has agency over his own situation. Nick doesn't. Like Nick's success and his business are based on things that are like pretty much random. Like the weather, the weather can determine whether or not you have a good year or a bad year. And so when I think of the hot hand, I have to remind myself that what the crucial distinction here is, is control. When we have control, we feel that we can have the hot hand. When we recognize that we don't have control, we kind of know we're at the mercy of chance and believing in the hot hand can be dangerous. It can be costly. It can backfire and it can burn us a little bit. So there are plenty of industries. Farming is a good one. Investing uh, your money is actually another really good one where you sort of have to recognize when you can and when you can't have the hot hand and, and what your environment allows and whether you are in an industry that encourages skilled performance or random performance. So another, I guess people would call a fallacy, these psychologists who say the hot hand doesn't exist. Another fallacy, it's sort of the opposite of the hot hand is the gambler's fallacy. What does that look like? And how does the gambler's fallacy show up in daily life? You know, it's funny because I like to think of the gambler's fallacy through basketball as well. So in basketball, you make three shots in a row. Everybody in the arena thinks you're making a fourth shot. That's the hot hand. In gambling, it's when you walk into a casino, you walk over to a roulette wheel and you see the wheel land on red three times in a row. What research has shown is that most people actually bet on black the fourth time. Now, these are really interesting scenarios because they're essentially the same. Three things happen. What do we do for the fourth? And when we think we're in control, we have the hot hand. When we recognize that we're not, we bet accordingly. One is the hot hand. One is the gambler's fallacy. And the gambler's fallacy has huge impacts on our decision-making as much as the hot hand. I mean, it's a, it's a similar idea. It's whether or not we are betting on the streak to continue or the streak to end. And so, I mean, where does that, I mean, I'm trying to think of like a, an example besides gambling where people would make, they say something happens and they do the opposite because they saw a streak. So one good example, when you think about people who make decisions, people in authority positions, like there, there was one paper that looked at the gambler's fallacy in a few of those industries. One was loan officers one was baseball umpires. Baseball umpires, like if you, if you call two close strikes in a row, you're much less likely to call 
a close pitch a third strike the next time even if it actually is a strike like what it's it's all because like you're 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 trying to even out the probability in your own mind the one i write about in the book is asylum judges this is kind of crushing and it's a little bit depressing but if you are a refugee in search of asylum your application is not simply judged on your merits they are based on like lots of other things including when your case is heard so asylum judges are much less likely to grant asylum if they have just granted asylum two or three times in a row. Now, a baseball umpire doing that might be trivial, but an asylum judge essentially has someone else's life in their hands. And because they are trying to even out the streak, because they have all of this power and and they, they don't want to encourage a hot hand, they're trying to stop it. And they're trying to get to a point in their mind where they they're sort of they sort of embody this regression to the mean like refugees regardless of the merits of their case suffer from that which which i find really demoralizing and and it sort of shows the human consequence of this idea of the hot hand like this is not just about basketball or even behavior like there are huge effects that people can suffer from this beyond like making one shot in basketball all right so that paper written in 86 sort of became an article of faith that the hot hand didn't exist at least amongst academics they said it didn't exist it's just everything's random it just appears like there's a, a streak going on but then these two harvard students had a hunch that the previous studies that this hot hand paper was based off were flawed and that the hot hand could actually exist so tell us about these guys and what led them to believe that the original hot hand paper was flawed yeah not just not like harvard students not like you know grad students or PhD students or professors, I mean, undergrads, like kids in their college dorm, they, they actually looked at the hot hand as part of an independent study, these econ majors a couple of years ago. And, and what they wanted to know was like, does today's data bear out that result from 1985? Like the data we have now, it was just unavailable to the researchers in the 80s in their nerdiest, wonkiest, wildest dreams. And what these undergrads were able to do was they were able to, um, to, to control for, for what happens when somebody gets hot. Now think about when someone gets hot. Like It warps the behavior of everybody around them. In basketball, if you're the shooter, you want to shoot more. You are taking crazier shots, longer shots, riskier shots. Your teammates are passing you the ball. Your coaches are calling plays for you. The defense is adjusting as well. They're sending double teams at you. They are making it their mission to make sure that you do not shoot because you are hot, right? Now, for a very long time, until these kids came along, we weren't able to control for those shifts, right? Like th- there was no way to know if someone was taking a layup or a three-pointer or a long three-pointer or a trickier three-pointer. It was just a shot was a shot and that was it. But they were able to get to negotiate access to this trove of data that came from these high-resolution tracking cameras in every NBA arena starting about 10 years ago. And because they were able to look at the distance of the defender and the distance of the shot, they were actually able to compute the probability of that shot going in. And once they controlled for that probability, they were able to show that when you do get hot, you're actually slightly more likely to make your next shot. Because if you control for the difficulty of a shot, it had always been masked, the hot hand, like it had been disguised because we take chances, we take riskier shots and longer shots and crazier shots. And when those shots go in, like they are actually a sign and they had, they had been all along. We just had no way of knowing it, that the hot hand actually might be a real thing. And, and, and this example 
was curious to me and and was really appealing because it showed that like this data that we have now, this better data, not just bigger data, but better data and more granular data, it can tell us things that we had always suspected but like could never prove for sure because we didn't have the data. The data wasn't good enough yet. It hadn't caught up to our own minds. And that's kind of what happened with the hot hand. Like the data that was used in that 1985 paper was the best data available at the time. But times have changed, and so has the data. And the data now tells us something that we all thought to be true. We just couldn't say for sure because the data had never been good enough. And about the same time these two Harvard undergrads were doing this this study, this research, there were also two economists who also started arguing that the hot hand fallacy studies that Travisky did missed something really important when they made their conclusion that the hot hand didn't exist. So what did Travisky miss that these guys saw? You know, honestly, it I, I have learned that trying to explain this bias that they found. Yeah, I had to read it like five times to, like, to get it. I know this sounds like a cop-out, but like, j- just read the book. Just like, just look at this table because you kind of have to wrap your mind around it in a very strange way. And, and, and actually that's important because like, this was a very, very subtle statistical bias that some of the world's brightest statisticians had missed for 35 years. Like nobody had seen this. And so for me to talk about it, for me to describe exactly what they found is tricky. But essentially what they found was that for 35 years, the fact that you shot the same when you were hot was always taken as bulletproof evidence against the hot hand. Like you were not more likely, you were the same amount. But what these two young American economists in Europe found was this bias that shows that if you are a 50% shooter and you shoot 50% when you feel hot, that actually is evidence for the hot hand. And we have been looking at this very old problem in the wrong way for like almost four decades. And the math is right. It's been rubber stamped. It's been published by like the top economic journal. All of these brilliant mathematicians and statisticians who have read the paper say it's right. It's super trippy. It's really mind boggling. But it, it lent this new chapter to this saga of the hot hand that it actually kind of flipped it on its head in a little bit. Like it showed that we're still thinking about this old problem and new ways of thinking about that problem can lead us to new conclusions about it. So uh, I, I actually, this is sort of like the, the, the new entry into this field of hot hand studies, this growing scientific literature. And I think what it did was ensure that this debate is not dying anytime soon. Like there are going to be more papers about this because like it it's a topic it's a f- idea it's a phenomenon that kind of drives us a little bit crazy and we just want to keep thinking about it well in Amos Travisky's partner uh, Daniel Kahneman you know they wrote thinking fast and slow like he was at a presentation where these guys are making their argument that they made a statistical error and Daniel Kahneman's like yeah you guys are right yeah exactly i mean you know i i was there that day and Kahneman says like you know it's unfortunate they made that error but i think their point still stands that we see patterns where they don't exist in randomness and and we invent causes to explain them. And I think that's right. And I think the cool thing about the hot hand is that we have been talking about this idea for like 35, 40 years. And there are very smart people on both sides of this debate. And like, I think part of the fun of it is just toying around with this idea for yourself and seeing where you land, thinking about like where the hot hand is possible, where it's not possible, what circumstance allow for it and what circumstances actively punish belief in the hot hand. Like it's, it's, it's that's sort of the beauty of this world of ideas is that we can each come to our own conclusions. We can do the work, we can read the papers and we can figure out what we think for ourselves. 
It'd be interesting to see the future of hot hand research if they're going to start doing things like measuring you know, the physiology of you know, players who experience the hot hand. No, I think so too. I think I would love to see like people strap electrodes to our brains and, and try to figure out exactly what is happening neurologically inside of us when we do feel hot. I think we're, we're able to do that sort of research now and it would be kind of fascinating to see it done on this like a, a, in a huge population sample. And I think people would be interested in it because people have been interested in this subject for 35 years at this point. I mean, so what do you think the the like practical takeaways? Like someone's listening to this podcast right now and they're like, okay, this is interesting. Hot hand maybe exists, but like how do, how can they apply this to their lives? Well, I think it's important to think about like when we can take those own heat checks in our lives, right? Like recognizing when we do have the hot hand and taking advantage of them because they can change a lot. Like I have felt it in my own career. There have been a few times, not many, but a few when like writing and reporting stories at the Wall Street Journal, when I do feel hot and something has changed. And I try to remind myself in those moments, like this is the time to really hunker down and do everything you can. Because the other thing we know about the hot hand is that it does not last forever. It goes away. And that's like the most frustrating thing about it because we know that like it's not forever. And so we have to take advantage of it while we can. Now, and there are a bunch of other like behavioral quirks and changes that we can make. And so like just thinking about where there is a hot hand or or where you might be prone to seeing patterns or or where like there might be examples of the gambler's fallacy and like how to adjust for them. In in the book I tell the story of one of these Yale economists who has studied the gambler's fallacy and he realized that he was subject to that very same bias that he wrote about. And so now when he grades papers and assigns his teaching assistants um, to, to, to look at exams, what he does is that he, he recognizes that sometimes if you read one paper that comes after like two A plus papers, that paper is not going to read all that well, even though it might be perfectly fine. It might be an A, it might be an A minus, but when it comes after those two A pluses, it might read like a B or a B minus. And so what he does is he takes all of his papers and he splits them in two and he shuffles them and he lets his teaching assistants grade them twice in different orders to try to reduce that bias as much as possible. He will then average those two scores and weight them accordingly. And like that's not perfect, but it's a whole lot better than what his system was then. So th- I think there are all types of ways of, of, of factoring these biases into our own minds and trying to adjust for them and, and, and seeing where they lead us. And if you're not experiencing the hot hand, you just got to keep pumping the quarters in to the machine until you start warming up again. That's, it's, that's actually the secret of the book. Just keep playing NBA Jam regardless of what you do. And I think things will work out. Right. Well, Ben, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, they can find the book anywhere books are sold and they can read me in the Wall Street Journal and they can find my best stories and more about the book at bzcohen.com. And I am bzcohen on every social media platform that we're all trying to avoid these days. <laughs> well, Ben Cohen, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. My guest today was Ben Cohen. He is the author of the book, The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, bzcohen.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash hothand, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout to get a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs>